Well, tonight we begin our series of talks on the Holy Spirit. That is, what we're trying to do is pull together what the Bible says in this big topic of the Spirit of God. And it's a topic that connects very intimately to our own personal experience. Some other very important topics in Christian doctrine and theology don't seem as closely connected to the death of Jesus or the resurrection of Jesus. But when we come to the Spirit, we're talking about something that is very personal and experiential. How do we make sense of our experience? Is there more to be experienced? They're important questions and fascinating questions that we'll explore. Because it's a topic, we'll be jumping around the Bible a little bit. That makes it a bit harder, especially if you're juggling a book and a Bible on your lap and your knees are shaking. Um, Most of the passages we'll look at will come up on the screen, and I hope you'll be able to see them and read them, and I'll try and read the one on the back, and if I can't, I'll just fake it. Um, But all the references are, are on the outline, which is on page something or other in your book. Page 10. Page 10 in your book, you'll find an outline. All the references are there, and they're there so that uh, you can look at them yourself later. You can see whether what we're saying is true to the Scriptures or not. Because it's such an important topic, and because what we're doing is so critical, I'd like us to pray again. Will you pray with me? Our Father, please open our minds to understand and our hearts to believe what you tell us. Help me to speak what is true and faithful and give us the attention and the softness of heart to take to heart what you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever felt envious of people like Lazarus? Remember Lazarus? He gets sick, he dies, he thinks that'll be his last breath, nothing more in life on this earth. And then the next thing he knows is he hears this voice saying, Lazarus, come out. And he finds himself walking out of a tomb, wrapped up in all this stuff, his body half decayed, and there's Jesus to meet him. You ever felt envious of people like Lazarus? They were actually there when it all happened. Or the guy who was born blind, and one day Jesus came to him, he'd never seen in his life, he didn't know what a tree looked like, he didn't know what red was. And Jesus says, be opened, and his eyes are opened, and for the first time in his life he could hear, sorry, he could see. (laughs) I mean, I would have just liked to have been in the crowd when that happened. I feel so envious of those who were actually there with Jesus, when they had their questions they could go and ask him. I've never been able to do that. In fact, wouldn't it be great if Jesus was here now at Midyear Conference? Get rid of Tim, have Jesus as the speaker. Wouldn't that just be the best? Well, Jesus says, don't be envious. This is John chapter 16, just after the passage that we looked at earlier. Very truly, I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Yeah, our good. Because unless I go away, the advocate, the Holy Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the spirit can't come until he goes. And when the spirit comes, you're better off than having Jesus here. Can you believe that? We are better off today, even just having me as the speaker, than having Jesus as the speaker, because the Holy Spirit is here. He's come. That's why this topic matters so much. 
the age we live in, you could call it the age of the digital, the connected age, the age of tolerance, but the Bible would call it the age of the Spirit. And so to have a mid-year conference on the Spirit, to explore the work of the Spirit, to see his significance for us, not its significance, his significance is going to be terrific. Well, let's start by introducing the Holy Spirit. Who or what are we talking about? And this will be very quick. We could do a whole NYC on the Trinity, but we won't this time. It'll be more like speed dating, but let's, let's start. We start with the Trinity, because the Trinity is really part where you need to make sense of God the Spirit. God has revealed himself to be one God in three persons. And that just comes through all over the Bible. But here's one passage when Jesus, at the end of his, uh, his earthly life, he says to his disciples, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, one name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. See there, there's one but there's three. It's not three who happen to muck around together and form a committee. It's not one who just has different facets. There's actually one, but three at the same time. If you tried to draw a diagram of it, you can't actually, but this is not what the, the Trinity looks like. It's just trying to tell you the truth of the Trinity. See, there is one God. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Son. And the Son is not the Spirit. It's three and one at the same time. And it's not as if in the Old Testament, well, God was God, and then he sort of changed to be the Son and came to earth as Jesus, and then that disappeared and he changed and morphed into the Spirit, sort of like water might change from ice to liquid uh, uh, to steam. It's not like that, because remember, Jesus talks to the Father, doesn't he? And Jesus sends the Spirit. They all exist at the same time for an eternity. Three centres of personality who relate to each other. And the spirit is a person. The spirit is a he, not an it, as we've already learnt tonight. He's not an impersonal force like Star Wars, not just energy. He's a person. And from John 14, we've seen that the Holy Spirit is, some, is the person of the Trinity sent by the Father in the name of Jesus. That is, the Spirit is not an independent operator. He does, like the Son does, he, he sees what the Father is doing and that's what he does. He's sent to do things by the Father, authorised by the Son, Jesus. The theologians say it this way, all their works are one. That is, the works of God, the Trinity, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, are all one. It doesn't mean they do exactly the same thing, but what they do is all the one work. That's why Jesus said, I only do what I see the Father doing. So too for the Spirit, he only does what the Father and the Son are doing. Analogies always break down, but I'll try and give you one. So imagine a, 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 somebody wants to build a building. I, I love skyscrapers, I'm an engineer by background, so anything like that technology, it just turns me on. Well, imagine a building that gets built, fantastic new building. And it happens because... A CEO of a company, the owner of a company, gets the contract to build the building. And the engineer then does all the work of, of designing it. And, and then on the ground, you've got people who pour concrete and weld all that metal stuff and, and make it up. And, and if you come along later and you see this building and say, who, beat this, who built this building? Well, you could say, well, it's the CEO. He built it, didn't he? You could say it was the chief engineer. You could say it was the concrete pourer. And all three are right answers. 
Because the Trinity works together like that. All their works are one. One of the implications of that is that what the Spirit does is never independent of what the Father or the Son does. Sometimes we think that way. This is something the Spirit does. But he's only ever doing what the Father does and the Son does. And Jesus refers to the Spirit as another advocate. Is this going to work? Yeah. In that passage we've just read, I'll ask the Father and he will give you another advocate. Now, advocate is a, it's a word, parakletos is sometimes uh, translated, transliterated from the Greek. It, it, it covers a wide range of meaning. It's somebody who stands beside you, maybe as your advocate in court, or maybe somebody who teaches you or comforts you or helps you. And, and Jesus has been that to his disciples. He's been their advocate. But he says, when I go, I'll send you another advocate. That's the Holy Spirit. Jesus is leaving. He'll be replaced by the Spirit. But the Spirit will be a little bit different to Jesus. Jesus has been with the disciples. They've been able to walk with him and talk with him and live life with him. But the Spirit will not only be with them, the Spirit will be in them. That's something Jesus could never do. That's why it's good that he goes to the Father and sends the Spirit. We're better off to have the Spirit in us, doing things that Jesus can't do and never did. Well, that's a little introduction, the speed dating of the Trinity. Now we want to think more about the Spirit himself in the Bible and through history. And the backstory of the age of the Spirit is helpful for us. And tonight we'll set the scene for that. It's going to be a little bit of information overload. It'll go fairly fast, a bit harder work than the, the next few nights, but it's critical for us. God's Spirit was there way back at the beginning. You remember when God created the heavens and the earth and the Spirit of God hovered over the waters before the creation was uh, teased out into its different parts, before it was filled with life. There already was the Spirit, God's power in action. And through the Old Testament, God's power, God's Spirit works in empowering individuals for their God-given tasks, especially people like kings and prophets. But the Old Testament looked forward to a new situation. And the new situation would be brought about by a spirit-filled person. Here's one of the passages in Isaiah chapter 11, where Isaiah talks about a king who will come. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. Jesse was King David's dad, and his line had been chopped off like a stump gets cut, cut down. But one day a shoot will come up. There'll be a new king from David's line and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him and he'll be a king better than any other king you've ever seen. He will bring justice. That's what we need in the world today, don't we? You look at Syria, you look at France, you look at Australia, look at Turkey. Justice is what we need. Somebody who can bring that, who has all the authority and power to impose goodness and this one by the spirit of God will do that a king to govern. Isaiah 42, a a different person. Uh, This is a servant of God, a humble, lowly servant who's not assertive, but will still bring justice. And this is one on whom the Spirit of God will rest. Isaiah 61, a prophet, a speaker, a preacher, The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim good news to the poor. Anointed by God's spirit. Now looking back 
from the perspective of Jesus, it's easy to see that these passages are all about the one and same person, the Messiah of Israel who would come one day, the king of God's new kingdom, the king of the new age that God had promised. And he'd be endowed with the spirit of God, marked by the spirit, empowered and enabled by the spirit to do that job, to rule wisely, to suffer humbly, to speak powerfully. But his coming will not just be him endowed with the Spirit. That new age, the the possession of the Spirit won't be limited to one or a few. It will be for all people, a Spirit-filled people. And this is what um, Joel says, the prophet. Afterward, I'll pour out my Spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on your servants, men and women. I'll pour out my spirit in those days. See the difference? In the Old Testament, the spirit was given to a few sort of eccentric people, some prophets here and there like Ezekiel, who really is a very weird sort of guy. The, the, the kings were empowered by the spirit. But now, Joel says, the spirit will be poured out on all people, even on servants, and not just on kings, but the lowliest person, and they'll all know God. And that idea of pouring out is is very evocative, isn't it? You pour out something, it means the people under it get drenched. Now, if I had a bucket of water up here and poured it out on you, you'd be wet, wouldn't you? Well, that's the idea. He'll pour out his spirit on all people. And it'll be a time of salvation. In those days, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. The, The doors are open, the windows are held open for you to change sides, to join God's side and be saved by his work. Or another passage, Ezekiel chapter 36, incredibly important passage, where Ezekiel looks forward to the day when God will wash his people clean from all their filth and sin. Because sin makes you feel dirty. It's, it's got that, that sense of, of just filth clinging to you. And he'll give them a new heart. He talks about it like a heart transplant. Take out your heart of stone, your sclerosized heart, and put in a soft, fleshly heart. Not literal, it's not going to be a rip your, your chest open, pull that one out, do a few stitches and put a new one in. It's, it's metaphoric because it, it's the same as putting his spirit in your hearts, inside you, to change you from the inside out. Jeremiah talks about a similar sort of thing in chapter 31. A time coming when God will make a new covenant, make the old covenant obsolete. Now, the problem with the old covenant wasn't the covenant, it was the people. They kept breaking it. If you've read any of the story of the Old Testament, it's so frustrating, isn't it? You keep reading of Israel and God does just amazing things for them. He rescues them out of Egypt, gives them a land of their own, gives them kings and judges. And what do they do? Well, every time it just turns sour, doesn't it? And and I just want to shake them and say, don't you get it? Don't be so stupid. Don't be so foolish. And that's what God's saying. You keep stuffing it up, Israel. That's the problem. You can't keep the covenant. And what's God going to do? going to make a new covenant where he changes people's hearts where people from the greatest to the least they know him they don't have to go to someone else to find out about God they personally know him and all their sins will be forgiven a changed people so they want to do good they want to do what is right they want to keep the covenant of God forgiven so that all their sins and failures no no longer are a dominating factor God deals with that through forgiveness. It's a marvellous picture 
of what God is going to do one day. And our society, frankly, is not much different to Israel, is it? We've got lots of laws. Our government keeps passing more and more laws. We've got all different levels of government. They all have their laws and they mount up. You go into the libraries and, well, I wouldn't bother reading them. The tax laws are this thick, just the tax laws. Why are there so many laws? Because we don't want to keep them. That's why, isn't it? <laughs> That's why you've got to make so many laws. People keep finding loopholes. Laws can't create good people. But God will reach in one day and do the heart transplant. So it's sort of like camps, isn't it? Most camps you go on, there's just so many rules you've got to keep. Because the people running the camp think you're going to be naughty. And they're probably right, aren't they? But this person who, brings, uh, 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 who is endowed with the Spirit will be the one who baptises with the Spirit. And that's the language that the New Testament uses of what these Old Testament passages talk about with Spirit-filled people. So you might remember what John the Baptist says. He says, I can only baptise you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who's more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, He will baptise you with the Holy Spirit and fire. The one coming will do the real thing. Water is just symbolic. It drenches you, but it only sort of drenches your outside. This one will baptise with the Holy Spirit. Real cleansing, real forgiveness, a drenching of the heart so you have a new heart. And he'll be so great, says John, that I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. That's sort of like saying... The person at dinner was so great, I'm not worthy to wash up the dishes for them. It's sort of bizarre, isn't it? How different do you have to be? How big has the gap got to be for that to be true? And who is that person who baptises with the Spirit? It's none other than Jesus, is it? If you know the story, you'll know that Jesus is the one that John is talking about. And so when we come to to the Gospels, the, the stories of Jesus... They're drenched with the Holy Spirit. He's there everywhere in what they're doing, especially in Luke's gospel. In Luke chapter 1, even Jesus' birth is by the Spirit. Mary is told that the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called Son of God. Even from before he's born, his life is the product of the Spirit. In chapter 3, at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him bodily, in the form of a dove, and a voice from heaven, the voice of the Father identifies him, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. When Jesus begins his ministry in the synagogue at Nazareth, he gets to preach, I'm not quite sure why he was the preacher, maybe he was just on the roster that day, but he gets the scroll of Isaiah, and he opens it to the bit we've already seen, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, and he sits down, And says, today, this is happening. The spirit-anointed one, the spirit-filled one, is here to begin his ministry. And as you see Jesus coming and going and do all that he does, he's, he's empowered by the spirit for his unique role in God's purposes as king and prophet, as servant. And the Holy Spirit is integral to all that he does, the miracles he does, the temptations he enters, his joy, his death and his resurrection. All are the work of God's Spirit in one way or another. And as the resurrected Lord, 
he becomes the spirit giver, the one who pours out his spirit, the spirit of God on all flesh. So in Acts chapter, chapter 1, after he's resurrected, before his ascension, he says to, to his uh, apostles, don't leave Jerusalem, wait for the gift my father promised, that is the gift of the spirit, which you've heard me speak about. John baptized with water, remember that? But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. This new age of the Spirit will start, and it starts on the day of Pentecost. Remember Pentecost? Well, we'll come back to that in a minute. If we flick forward a few chapters, of maybe about three or four months, to Acts chapter 11. Peter is describing what happened with Cornelius, if you know the story in chapter 10. And he says, uh, sorry, I've got the wrong slide, haven't I? I've jumped ahead too quickly. Let's go to uh, Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. And in Acts chapter 2, when the Spirit comes, remember, they're gathered in the upper room. And the Spirit comes like tongues of fire and, and settles on the head of each one of them. There's this rushing noise of wind. And they're all filled with the Spirit. And they start to speak in different tongues. And crowds gather around. And Peter gets up to explain. And he says, well, we're not drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. You can see they're not uni students. Now, what's happening, here's the explanation, is what the prophet Joel prophesied. In the last days, God said, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He quotes that bit. And what he's saying is that if the spirit is poured out, that tells you not just something about the spirit, but about Jesus. Because Jesus, that means Jesus has been exalted to the right hand of God. He's reigning in heaven over all of creation, the whole universe, and he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out now what you see and hear. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified. Remember, you, you, only a few days ago, a few weeks ago, you nailed him up there and he died. God has made him Lord and Messiah, King of the universe, the Messiah of God's people, the one who rules over all. And because that's who he is, because he's now conquered all, it's the age of the Spirit. It's begun because Jesus has poured out the Spirit. Some of you might recognise that building. You may not recognise the occasion. This was the opening of the Opera House in 1973. You probably don't remember it. I do. I was there. I remember the opening of the Opera House. In fact, I lived in a university college at that time. And two weeks before the Queen came and opened the Opera House, we organised our own opening of the Opera House. We all put on tails and top hats and all sorts of stuff. We went down, we officially cut ribbons, we had speeches. We opened the Opera House. But the Queen did it much better. It was a fantastic day. The the whole of Sydney was out on the harbour. It it was just magical. And the Opera House got opened. And the, the opening of the Opera House has actually been the most spectacular event, I think, in the Opera House or around the Opera House. It it really was a a magnificent occasion. And it's only because it was opened that every other thing in the Opera House has been able to to be there. None of them have rivaled it in how spectacular they are, but they all depend on the opening. Well, Pentecost is like that. It's the opening of the Age of the Spirit. It's the spectacular opening that those who were there were blown away by, couldn't miss. It It was spectacular. Now, the work of the Spirit since then hasn't been quite as spectacular, I don't think. Certainly, it is as significant, but it doesn't look as impressive, maybe, as the opening. That's just the way with openings. 
But what Peter says is, at Pentecost, the significant thing was not the spectacular. It was that Jesus is now ruling. Because if Jesus is now ruling and he's poured out the Holy Spirit, it means that you can call on the name of the Lord and be saved. The age of the Spirit is the age of salvation. And if you do, you'll be forgiven. And you'll be given the Spirit. You'll become part of this new age. But let's think a little bit more about this baptism of the Spirit. How does that fit into things? What's it about? We've already seen in Acts chapter 1 that Jesus talks about what's going to happen at Pentecost as the coming of what the, the Father promised, the Holy Spirit, and it's the baptism of the Spirit. You will be baptized with the Spirit. And Cornelius, we now get to him. Uh, uh, in chapter 10, Cornelius is the first Gentile to become a Christian and be fully incorporated into the people of God. And how did they know that? Because the Spirit fell on him. And this is how Peter explained it. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he'd come on us at the beginning. Then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptised with water, but you'll be baptised with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is at Pentecost, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Do you see what he's saying? The baptism of the Spirit they experienced at Pentecost. Spectacular, like the opening of the opera house. Cornelius, though, had experienced the same thing, the baptism of the Spirit in becoming a Christian. Peter knew that he was a real Christian without coming under the law, without becoming a Jew, because he was baptised with the Spirit just like they were. He was initiated into this new age of the Spirit. It was the defining and definitive experience of becoming a Christian. Not a second experience after you become a Christian, but how you become a Christian. In the New Testament... There's only one reference to the baptism of the Spirit in the epistles. That is, as the apostles write to Christians spread around the Roman Empire to describe Christian life, there's only one place where this term, baptism of the Spirit, is used. And that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul talking to this Corinthian church, and if you know anything about the Corinthian church, it's a pretty terrible church. Problems, immature as anything. But what Paul says to them is this. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, and all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we're all given the one spirit to drink. And notice he's saying this to all Christians, not a select group of Christians, not some Christians who've had another special experience. He's saying this to all Christians in Corinth, some of whom, as I said, were very immature, were very disobedient, who really hadn't got their act together at all as Christians. In chapter 3, he says, "I, I could almost call you pagans from the way you're behaving. But he's sure that they're all being baptized with one spirit. They've all had this experience of being baptised in the Spirit. Now, some people would suggest that means they all spoke in tongues. But if you read further in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he actually says to the congregation, do all of you speak in tongues? And in Greek, you can ask a question in a way that indicates whether you want the answer yes or no. And he indicates with that question, he's expecting the answer no. No, not all of you speak in tongues. They're all baptised by the Spirit, but not all of them speak in tongues 
That is, Paul's understanding is the same as Peter's. The baptism of the Spirit is the work of the Spirit you experience when you first become a Christian. It's that definitive work of the Spirit by which you do become a Christian. Now, unfortunately, there are many other ideas of the baptism of the Spirit that are around. Is uh, oh, uh, sorry, I'll go forward one. Yep. So this is taken from the website of one of the uh, one prominent denomination in Australia. The baptism of the Spirit. We believe that the baptism of the Spirit is the bestowing of the uh, believer with the power to be an effective witness for Christ. This experience is distinct from and subsequent to the new birth, is received by faith and is accompanied by the manifestation of speaking in tongues as the Spirit gives utterance. Do you see how that is actually contradictory to what Paul is saying and what Paul affirms in 1 Corinthians 12? The baptism of the Spirit is actually the same idea, really, as being born again. Remember, Jesus has this discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3, and, and he just throws this curveball at Nicodemus that Nicodemus can't handle. He says, you've got to be born again. Nicodemus says, what on earth are you talking about? And Jesus goes on to explain, unless you're born of water and of the Spirit, you, won't even, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but Spirit gives birth to Spirit. Don't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind, the same word as spirit, blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. You can't even see the kingdom of God. You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born of the spirit. Unless the spirit regenerates you, rebirths you. And if he does, then you're a Christian, a real, genuine, full-on, full-quid Christian. But I want you to notice something. What we're talking about here with the baptism of the Spirit is something supernatural. It's an experience outside more than God's normal sustaining uh, work in this natural world. It's something extraordinary. So the question I want to ask you is, are you baptised by the Spirit? It's a vital question, isn't it? Because if there's only one sort of Christian, that is a spirit-baptised Christian, then it's actually asking the same question as, are you a Christian? But if I ask, are you baptised by the Spirit, there's all sorts of confusing factors that come into play. It's, it's not as obvious and straightforward as you might want it to be because it's easy to point to some sorts of experiences. If I had that experience, if I have, I'm born, I've been baptised by the Spirit. If I haven't, I haven't been baptised by the Spirit. And as I've suggested, speaking in tongues has sometimes been used as that experience, that test. But it's not. There's other reasons for confusion, so other false trails. One is miracles. But listen to what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of my Father. Many of you will say to me on that day, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we drive out demons and perform miracles? And I'll say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. We're likely to think, we're tempted to think, if somebody does miracles, they must be Christian, they must be baptised by the Spirit. But Jesus says, no, it's possible to prophesy and, and do exorcisms and heal, even in Jesus' name, but be evildoers whom Jesus doesn't know. 
Others suggest maybe good works. If you can just please God enough, God will reward you with the baptism of the Spirit. If you, maybe if you go and get baptized with water, it will come with that if you've got enough faith. But listen to what Paul says in Titus. God saved us not because of righteous things we'd done, but because of his mercy. Saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, not because of righteous things we'd done, purely by grace. Or we can connect baptism of the Spirit to our emotions. Of course, we do expect to feel the Holy Spirit, and we'll come back to this question through the week. We look for emotional experiences or states as evidence of the Spirit's work. And so if I feel exhilarated or I feel transcendent somehow, I feel the presence of God, that must be the work of the Spirit. Maybe I've been baptised by the Spirit. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not against emotions. I, I love emotions. Titanic was on TV the other night and I cried again. <laughs> I used to watch Gilmore Girls with my daughter and I'd even cry in Gilmore Girls. Can you, can you believe that? I, I'm a wuss, I really am. I love emotions. But emotions are no guide to the work of the Spirit. Here's just one example. 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about sorrow. He says there's different sorts of sorrow. <laughs> it looks the same, it looks sorrowful, there's tears welling up, there's, there's sorrow, but godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaving no regret but worldly sorrow this looks the same it's the same emotion but it doesn't have the same effect it brings death don't judge things by their emotions because some of us are marshmallows aren't we some are blocks of wood neither is more spiritual than the other well if it's not miracles or emotions or tongues what are the essential marks? How do I know whether I've been baptised by the Spirit? Well, the Bible gives us some very clear ones. We're going to look at two tonight, and this is our home stretch. The first one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. The same passage where Paul has said, you're all baptised by the Spirit. And he starts that passage with the question of, how do you know whether you have the Spirit? How do you know whether the Spirit's been at work? About spirituals, he says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to be uninformed and ignorant. You know, when you're pagan, somehow or other, you're influenced, led astray to mute idols. So I want you to know that no one who's speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus be cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. See what he's saying? How do you know the Spirit's at work? Well, not because you feel the Spirit necessarily, but because of what you believe about Jesus. The work of the Spirit is to bring us to acknowledge Jesus as Lord. To know that Jesus is the Lord, Lord of heaven and earth, Lord by right and by conquest. He is the Lord of all. But it's more than that. It's then to believe, to really genuinely believe that therefore Jesus is my Lord. Now, obviously, he's not just talking about saying the words. You could teach a parrot to say Jesus is Lord. That wouldn't mean they have the spirit. It's the words of the heart, the words of conviction. And Paul's indicating that that, that belief is a radical change. Because our default position is not to believe that Jesus is Lord, is it? I mean, some of you did grow up in Christian families, but if you didn't, you know that that wasn't just how you naturally felt. Well, I know that Jesus is the Lord of the universe, so I want to serve him. That's not default, is it? Default is, my life is my life. You, keep, you get out, Jesus. I don't want you involved. Somebody comes along and tells us about Jesus being Lord. Our instinctive response 
is to keep them at bay. Because I'm living for me, not, not for him. And so this change involves two things. Firstly, being convinced it's true that Jesus is Lord. But there's more than that. So I lived for a few years believing that Jesus is Lord, but I suppressed it. I just didn't want it to be true. I knew it was true. I just didn't want to take it seriously. The second thing that needs to happen is that we act on that belief. The Bible calls that repentance. Turning away from living for myself, living independently, and acknowledging Jesus as my Lord. Beginning now to serve him instead of myself. And that radical change, that total turnaround, is the work of the Spirit. You say, well, why is that the work of the Spirit? Isn't that just the work of Jesus? Well, listen to what Jesus says about the Spirit. When the Advocate comes, whom I send in, uh, from my Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. What's the focus of the Spirit's work? The focus of the Spirit's work is Jesus. He testifies about Jesus. He's testified in your heart that Jesus is Lord, if that change has happened. The Spirit is always pointing away from himself towards Jesus. The the theologians called it self-effacing. You know what self-effacing is, isn't it? I, I don't want people to look at me, look at them. Well, that's what the Spirit is like. He's never drawing attention to himself. He's always drawing attention to Jesus, always pointing away from himself towards Jesus. I think the best analogy that I've come across is the idea that the Spirit is like a floodlight. Now, what's the purpose of a floodlight? So they put a floodlight there, uh, lighting the Parthenon. So you'll come along and have a look at the floodlight and walk around the base and, and measure them out and measure the lumens coming out of the floodlight? No. The floodlight's there so you look at the building. The floodlight's there so you can watch the cricket, not to draw attention to itself. And the Spirit is the best floodlight in history. We're doing a conference, a week on the Holy Spirit. Now, if we do this right and the Holy Spirit is at work, guess what? This will actually be a conference about Jesus. I hope by the end of the week, that's been your experience. Because he testifies to Jesus. He brings the conviction that Jesus is Lord and bows my knee to that Jesus. That is the work. That's the authentic. That is the the archetypal work of the Spirit. And there's a second like it. God as Father. Romans chapter 8 is a passage we'll look at uh, on Wednesday morning a little bit more. But this is what Paul says. The Spirit you receive doesn't make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, to be sons and daughters of God. And by him... We cry, Abba, Father. If you stop and reflect, it's a remarkable thing to call God Father, the creator of the universe who is so different, so other to me and you that I can't even live in in his presence naturally. Islam would never dare to call God Father. Now, I know if you've grown up in a Christian family, you've sort of been conditioned to do it probably. It's just what you've been taught, but you can lose how remarkable it is. Because we were slaves to fear, he says. We feared God. Do you remember that experience? Where you wanted to keep your distance from God, not just because it was your life, but also because God was sort of like a, I don't know, a policeman or something, wasn't he? 
just shining his torch into your life to try and show up what you've done wrong. That fear of being found out kept you away from God. But the Holy Spirit moves us from fear to family. Not to fear to arrogance and cockiness, but to family, to calling God Father. If you've got a good human father, you know what that feeling's like, don't you? You know the confidence you can just walk up to your father. You you know the acceptance and welcome you'll get. If you haven't got a good father, you know what sort of father you'd love to have, don't you? A father whose strength makes you feel safe and not afraid. How is it that we have no fear of God anymore? Because we're forgiven through Jesus. Because everything I've done wrong, everything that's on my conscience has been washed clean by the death of Jesus and through his resurrection. That's why there's nothing to fear. And the Spirit convinces us that God is no longer somebody to be feared, but instead somebody to be approached who will welcome us, to whom we can uh, address as Father. So there's two essential marks, two essential ways to work out whether you've been baptised by the Spirit. Jesus is Lord, God is your Father. You've repented from living for yourself, to submit to Jesus, to serve him and honour him. And you know the forgiveness that Jesus has won so that you can come to him as father. That is, you've heard the gospel of Jesus, that he died for you and rose again to be the Lord of all. And you've believed it. But you might say to me, Tim, but I didn't feel anything. Yeah, I've come to believe that and my life's been changed, but I didn't, there were no tingles up and down my spine. I didn't somehow have this rush of blood or something that was the spirit. Where, where's the spirit? That is the spirit. The spirit has done a remarkable work in your life. He's baptized you. He's drenched you. He's brought you to truth, to reality, to grace, to forgiveness. Is that you? Then you've been baptized by the spirit. No flames on your head. No rushing wind of sound, no tongues, no, well, maybe there were, but whether there were or not, they're not essential. You couldn't repent and trust Jesus without the baptism of the Spirit. But I also presume there are people here tonight for whom that's not true. Your life is still your life. You're hanging on to it. You won't serve Jesus. You won't bow your knee to him. You're still afraid of God. You keep away from him. You want to keep him in the dark about your life. Please change. Can I say this with all the sincerity and concern I can muster? Why resist Jesus? Why resist his call on your life to bow your knee to him? Why do you want to go on unforgiven? condemned by your own actions you know you are please change please do it tonight don't don't wait if there are things you've got to work out well work them out but start to do that talk to someone help ask them to help you work it through i hope you've seen tonight that being a christian is not just a set of beliefs it's not just trying harder to be good It's not just joining a social group to belong to. I belong to the Christian Union or this church or that. Being a Christian, becoming a Christian is about starting a new life. Being made alive by the Spirit of God.
becoming a Christian and living as a Christian is experiencing the age of the Spirit in a way was not available before Jesus came. But because he died and rose again, because he ascended to the right hand of his Father and has now poured out his Spirit, then we live in the age of the Spirit. We are baptised by the Spirit. This mid-year conference, we're going to explore that work of the Spirit. It's his huge effect on our lives. More and more ways that we're better off having the Spirit than we would be having Jesus here. It's going to be adventure, great adventure. There's much to come to understand. We'll understand more of the experiences we've already had. And we'll find out more about the experiences of, of the Spirit's work that we may have. I'm looking forward to the week. I hope you are. But I'd like to finish by praying. Will you pray with me again? Our Father, we thank you for sending your Spirit. Jesus, thank you for being willing to be replaced, subbed by your Spirit. We thank you that we live in the age of the Spirit, the age of salvation, when the windows and doors are flung open and anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We thank you for living in the age in which, by your Spirit, you transform us from the inside out. You baptise us and drench us with a new life. Please, Father, make that more and more real in our consciousness and our experience. In Jesus' name, amen.